Uh, it's, uh, we're going to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's find our Bibles. If you need one, they're down the center aisle as well. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4, carrying on from where we left off last week, arming ourselves for suffering. Let me just get my phone so that I can work out how long I've preached for. Great. I read an article this week. It was by a lady called Carol Spires, and it was called The Importance of Preparation, and she wrote this. Preparation is key. Adequate preparation is not always fun, and many of us do not look forward to doing it. It can often appear to be boring and uninteresting, particularly to those who love the buzz of spontaneity. However, preparation can prove to be one of the most valuable skills that you can master in avoiding the buildup of stress and anxiety as deadlines and pressures approach. Perhaps you find that a large part of your day probably entails dealing with and managing problems as they arise, a proportion of which may be completely unexpected, leaving you the responsibility of reacting to them unprepared. But preparation is a skill that can be learned, and the advantage of preparation is that you can manage your problems and deal with the challenges as they arise more quickly and more efficiently than when you are caught unaware. I thought that was an interesting article about the importance of preparation. It got me thinking about how we prepare so much in life for different things. So I know there are some here who are preparing for their exams this week. They studied their courses, doing their revisions, sitting past papers in preparation. We've had weddings this year where people have prepared Dresses have been made, cakes have been baked, invitations have been sent out, books have been read, vows have been prepared, because preparation is key. New babies bring preparation. We go for job interviews and we prepare our CVs and we work out our interview techniques. We prepare for retirement, as Linda so wonderfully encouraged us, something we should all be looking forward to, I'm sure. We prepare for Life after we're gone through wills and funerals and perhaps we even give thought to what we would like to be said about us in those eulogies. We prepare to go to war. Seems the only thing we don't prepare for is Brexit, isn't it? So I'm not saying anything about my political persuasion, but that's just obvious. Uh, You know, we don't, if only they had read the Carol Spires uh, article on the importance of preparation. Uh, but if the Bible is true, and, and I believe that it is, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So if that's what's going to happen to us, we better prepare for it. Because preparation is key. And we can learn how to prepare. And if we prepare, we will be better equipped for the challenges that we face than when we face them unawares. So, the question I want to answer this morning is this. How do we get ready? How do we as Christians get ready for persecution? Now, we've already covered some of this, but here Peter is going to be even more specific towards us. What do Christians need to know so that we can not just suffer persecution, but embrace it as God's will? 
And we're going to look at three answers that he gives. Because we don't want to be naive to the threat of persecution, neither do we want to be unprepared when it does inevitably strike. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at verses 18 to 22, some of the most difficult in the whole New Testament, where Peter encourages us to remember the suffering of Jesus and how it was his pathway through the cross to vindication and victory and glory. And then we basked in the triumph of Christ's glory, uh, uh, triumph over all evil. Now, in verses 1 to 6, Peter's going to return again to uh, Christ's suffering, but not just to highlight the triumph. He's going to bring Christ's suffering before us again with different intentions so that we might be prepared for our own suffering. So let's read verses 1 to 6. Then I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to see three things that we need to know to prepare ourselves to embrace suffering. Here's God's word to us, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But... They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, the goodness of it, the truth of it. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes amongst us when we gather uh, in a particular way, in a unique way, to draw our eyes away from ourselves and to Christ. We pray now that the Spirit would do that work of illuminating and floodlighting Christ in our hearts and in our minds so that we might be prepared through your word and the power of your Spirit for the suffering and the persecution that we might face as we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. We ask these things for his glory. Amen. Okay, so if preparation is key, how do we prepare? Three things that Peter wants us to know. He wants us to know what we need to do. He wants us to know what will happen to us. And he wants us to know what God will do. So three things. Know what we're to do. Know what will happen to us. Know what God will do. So let's begin with that first one. We need to know what we need to do. In verse 1, it begins with the word since or therefore, which is an indication that he's drawing together his thoughts and he's going to provide some personal and practical application to all that's gone before. Uh, And he's going to tell us that the the suffering that Jesus experienced brought not only victory over sin and evil, but it also provides us as believers with a model and an example to follow in our suffering. And within this this point of knowing what we need to do, he's going to tell us three things that we need to do. 
So this first point is broken down into three separate points. So we need to know what to do. And here's the first thing we need to do. We need to become people of resolve. People of resolve. Look with me again at verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The first way that we prepare for persecution is by developing clear thinking and the same thinking about persecution and suffering as Jesus had. Now, if you go through the New Testament, and we don't have time to do it, you will find numerous times in the gospel where Jesus speaks about his uh, understanding of what his life would entail. He lived as a stranger and an alien in the world, and he expected hardships, he expected opposition, he expected unjust suffering, he expected death. So you read places like Matthew 16, 21 to 28, and, and chapter 17, 22 and 23, or Mark 8, 3, 31 and 30 to 33, or Luke 9, chapters, uh, chapter 9, verse 22 to 27. And all of these, uh, there's many different places in the Gospels. Perhaps you could do that study to find out what Jesus thought about suffering. Because time and time again, he tells his disciples, the Son of Man has come to earth and he will be given over to, the, to his opponents and his enemies. And he'll be beaten and he'll be persecuted and he will die. But three days later, he will rise again. He says it over and over and over again. Luke 24, after he has gone through all of that and he has risen again on the road to Emmaus, he tells him, doesn't it say the Son of Man had to die and be raised again? It's all over the Gospels. And so Peter calls us to have the same kind of mindset. If we've been united to Jesus Christ in faith, he calls us to identify with him in suffering. For as the head goes, so the body goes. And our perspective and our resolve in the face of persecution must be no different to Jesus. Now this arm yourself is a military term and it has military connotations. It, it's a term that says get ready for war. Get ready for war. And, and if you've seen soldiers prepare for war, they're disciplined there's a grit and a determination and a single-mindedness and a fitness that they give themselves to so that they are ready for war. And so if we're going to follow Jesus and live in enemy territory, we need to arm ourselves. We need to be preparing for war, but not with weapons like guns or swords or whatever it might be or armor. We need to prepare ourselves and get ready with the same thinking, with the right attitude. Now this goes against much of Western Christianity that really would, we would prefer a, a theology and a doctrine and a gospel of healthy bodies and bulging wallets. That we would like a life of ease and comfort and acceptance and friendship with the world. But here Peter calls us to prepare for war. He's already mentioned it back in chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Or maybe it's 13, I don't know, I can't remember um, <coughs> off the top of my head. But he's called us to prepare for war. And again, he's here calling us to arm ourselves for war. Because a life of ease and comfort and acceptance and friendship with the world is not really the true Christian life. The call to a healthy body and a bulging wallet is not really the gospel. We're instead called to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to Go through the cross with him, if you like, because he says, take up your cross and follow me and suffer for doing good just as he did. And we know from the Gospels, Jesus in his, in his humanity suffered in the flesh, as Peter tells us, knowing what it was like to be beaten and mocked and scorned 
and flogged. Knowing what it was like to be subjected to gross miscarriage of justice. Knowing what it was like to be reviled and spat upon. Knowing what it was like to be abandoned even by his friends. To be publicly humiliated and to be murdered. And yet all the way through the Gospels you find that Jesus also knew that his suffering was God's plan. That God was sovereign over it. And that God would use it for his good purposes. And ultimately for the vindication and glory of his name. So Peter tells us to arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking. To follow the example of Jesus in, in, in his battle with sin. He was prepared willingly to, to embrace suffering. Now you might ask, how do we do that? How do we embrace suffering? Well, I've just got five quick application points that you could take away and, and think about how you could arm yourselves with the example of Jesus Christ. The first one is this, read the Gospels over and over again and walk with Jesus. Because if you do, you'll develop the, mind, the same mindset. He'll rub off on you. What does it say in Acts chapter 4 when they arrested Peter and John in the face of persecution? He said, they recognize them as men who had been with Jesus. So how do we be with Jesus? Well, we walk with him in the Gospels, walking closely with him as he suffers, letting his example steal our souls. Then read 1 Peter over and over again and let the truths of Christ's suffering and his victory massage down into our hearts and all of the implications of that so that we might be strengthened. Here's another thing that you could do. Read through the scriptures and find the hard truths that they call us to in light of suffering. Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when, those, when they persecute you and revile you on my account. Or Matthew 5. Memorize them because you can't buy t-shirts and little plaques for your wall and coffee cups with those kind of verses on. But you need them. We need them. Here's something else you could do, the fourth thing. Read about other Christians who've suffered for the gospel and imitate them as they've imitated Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't get my book out, so hang on. But uh, pick this up. It was in our, in our church library. If you didn't know we had a church library, we do. It's at the office. Uh, and you can just borrow books from there and probably actually never return them either. Uh, and you could... You could just keep hold of them. But one of the books that we've got on there is, is Five English Reformers by uh, J.C. Ryle. He was the Bishop of Liverpool in the Victorian era. And he studied the lives of, the, of, the, of English reformers who were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I just thought I'd read you a little bit because it's inspiring to read the lives of those who've gone before us. And it should come up on the screen. But I think this is a way we arm ourselves with truth and encouragement and faith to walk in our own suffering. So Ryle writes this, the very first leading English reformer who broke the ice and crossed the river was John Rogers, a London minister. On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church where he preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby, whom the bishop in his diabolical cruelty had flatly refused him leave to see in prison. So he just saw them, but he was hardly allowed to stop. And then he walked on calmly to the stake, for he's to be burned at the stake. 
repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. For up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death. And they could hardly have believed that they would actually give their lives to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even the French ambassador wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death. As if he was walking to his wedding. Wouldn't you want to be like that? With a trust in God that says, no matter what, burn me at the stake. Christ is my all in all. So, you can argue over this book after. Um, it's, It's a really, it's a great book. And finally, uh, 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 one final way you can prepare for persecution, just and arm ourselves, is to pray for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. Get on a website like opendoorsuk.org and find stories. Christians are the biggest persecuted group in the entire world, and we should pray for our brothers and sisters. That's how we arm ourselves. Read the Word. Read about the effects of the Word on the lives of others. Pray for ourselves and others that that those effects of the word would be felt in our lives. Arm ourselves. Be willing to go to battle. Prepare to embrace suffering. Now, verse 1b closes with a phrase that needs a little bit of explanation, doesn't it? Because it raises questions for us. Because he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does Peter mean? If you've suffered, you've ceased from sin. Well, I don't think he's suggesting that suffering somehow magically and mysteriously makes you perfect and sinless. Oh, that it would, huh? Um, Such a wooden interpretation. Oh, so I just suffer and then I become sinless. Boom, overnight. No, such a wooden interpretation would go against everything else that the Bible teaches. So he can't mean that. So what I think he does mean is he's just simply affirming that if you are suffering for the gospel or for doing good or for the sake of Christ or for the kingdom of God, which are all interchangeable terms, and if you are suffering for the gospel and there's a willingness to embrace it, that demonstrates that you're done with sin, that sin you've ceased from sin. In other words, everyone who, has, who is suffering for Christ or is prepared to suffer for Christ has somewhere along the line in their life decided to forsake sin and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. And sin's power and dominion over them has been broken. And the mastery of sin has been replaced by a new master who is Jesus Christ. And in that way, then, we have ceased from sin having its dominion over us, being, its, being our master as we've committed ourselves to Christ instead. We've committed ourselves to his glory and his lordship and not to sin. And so we've made, in doing so, we've made the statement, I would rather suffer for Jesus than sin for myself. 
That's what Peter means. And he says, if you are prepared to embrace suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, that, brings, that should bring great joy and assurance that your conversion is genuine. For all who suffer in the flesh, for Christ's sake, have shown themselves to have ceased from sin being their master. They've embraced Jesus as master instead. And so we just got to ask ourselves the questions, do our lives evidence that kind of resolve that we're willing to suffer rather than sin? Or in the face of potential suffering, do we just like be like a chameleon and sort of blend into the world around us and just, okay, I'd rather shrink back from making a stand for Jesus and I'd rather just go into unbelief and fear and whatever it might be. And, I, and, I, and you know what a chameleon does? It changes its look to fit in with the, crowd, the, the world around it. And we say, I'm not prepared for suffering. So I'm going to choose sin instead. If we do that, we've got to be warned here. Perhaps our faith is not genuine. So Peter wants us to become people of resolve. Arm ourselves, arm ourselves with the same thinking. Second thing under this first point of what we need to know what to do, and this is where we, the bulk of our time is being spent, is he tells us that we are to live for the will of God. So in verse 2, he says this, um, So, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, so to live for the rest of your life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Of God. So he actually he gives us the, the next two things in one verse. But we're going to look at the will of God first. We're called to live for the will of God. So we're to be people of resolve and then we're to live for the will of God. Now what does he mean here in living for the will of God? What does it mean to live for the will of God? Well, he's already introduced it to us in his book previously, in this letter previously. And he, he tells us what the will of God is by contrasting it with human passions. So look with me if you want. Just flick back to uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Because here Peter contrasts the will of God with human passions as well. He says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, or human passions, the so same words, but... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So, laying aside human passions, what's the will of God? Be holy in all your conduct. So, the will of God for Christians is to be holy. To wholeheartedly pursue holiness, to go after sanctification, to grow in godliness, to become more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. It's a call to holiness. That's what the will of God is for us. Now look with me at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, because Peter does the same thing here. Beloved, verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh... Same words, human passions, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct 
honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So not only is the call of the will of God to be holy, but it's to be countercultural. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So although they say you're evildoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day when he visits. So it's a call to be countercultural. It's a call to set an example to show that we're different to the world around us. It's a call to swim against the tide of today's culture with all of its immorality and idolatry. And instead, as Christians, be known for our uprightness and our integrity and our honesty and our righteousness and our doing good to others. And if you remember in chapter 3, he goes on to explain one of the supreme characteristics uh, and ways that Christians do good is we submit to those who are ungodly. People in, in authority who are difficult and ungodly, we submit to them. That's a characteristic and a mark of doing good. So Peter says the will of God is holiness and counterculturalness. Holiness, living for God and doing good to others. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be people of resolve and we're called to live for the will of God. But then he goes on, third point under this first point, leave behind human passions. That's verse two as well. But then he develops it in verse three where he says this, for the time that is past is suffice. It's enough for doing what the Gentiles did. So in other words, Peter comes and he says to them, listen, I know that you're former pagans. I know that you're former Gentiles. I know that you lived a particular way of life before you became a Christian. But now you're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're part of his family. So therefore, leave behind all those things that so easily entangled you in the past. And may still have its little tentacles gripping at your heart. Leave them behind. Leave behind these human passions. Put them in the rear view mirror and speed away as fast as you possibly can. And verse 3 is a descriptive list. It's, it's certainly not exhaustive. It's just descriptive of the kinds of sins and human passions that we are called to leave behind as Christians. Living in sensuality, so sexual immorality, and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's a call to leave these things behind. These things that pagans celebrate, that they participate in willingly. Peter says, we've got to, as Christians, we've got to leave them behind because those things do not compute with God's things. They don't blend together. You can't take God and mix him with orgies and sensuality and drinking parties. They just don't fit together. They don't blend. You can't mix them. It's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 6 when he's talking about money and God. You can't serve two masters. So if you've decided to follow Christ and are prepared to suffer for him and you've ceased from sin, you've got to leave these things behind. Because they don't mix. And he says, listen, you wasted enough time on those things in your previous life. You know they're empty. Be done with that old way of living. 
Live for Christ, even in the face of suffering. Why? Because Jesus is better than those things. Jesus is better than those things. This vivid description of sin in the first century isn't that different to the world that we live in, is it? You look at that and you go, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. That's not just you know, uh, restricted to I and Appa. That happens on, in our city. That happens amongst our friends. Maybe even we have pursued those things at times. Now, I know that there's a few of us in the room who were saved at a young age. And you read that list and you go, I haven't really done any of those things. And that's, that's the mercy of God towards you. And you should thank God for that, that he has spared you from those things. But there may be some, some who in the room who got saved later in life or who... As the, the old hymn says, that we're prone to wander. And we read that list and you go, I just feel such a weight of guilt. Yep, I tick that one off, living in sensuality. Yep, gave myself to passions. Yep, drunkenness. Not orgies, but drinking parties, yeah. Idolatry, yep. And you read that list and you think, oh. I wish I could erase the memories of my past. Well, Peter is here not trying to instill fresh guilt. He just wants us to take a sober look at our previous lives and the shame and the consequences of living in such a way so that we'd be motivated to say, I want to leave that behind. I want to be done with that. That we look on with revulsion and fear that once we were swept along with the crowd, heading for hell. And yet Christ in his mercy has reached down and plucked us and spared us. He, want, he brings these things to mind so that we might orientate our lives around a new vision and a new view of life. One where Christ is Lord. And he calls all of us, whether we be saved at a young age, whether we be saved at a later in life, whether we carry baggage or whether we have been spared the baggage. He says, do not waste your time on what the Gentiles do. In fact, actually in the Greek, it says, um, live for the will of God. For the time past was enough living for the will of the Gentiles. That's the way it works in the Greek. So he's really contrasting the will of God with the will of the Gentiles. He says, you've done enough, or you've seen enough, or you've seen the consequences of it enough. Please leave it behind. Don't give any time or thought or energy or life to human passions, because through the resurrection of Jesus, we have the power to walk free of those things, to put them in our rearview mirror and go forward. So he says, embrace suffering because Christ is better. He's better than all of these things that promise so much but deliver so little. Christ is better. And even with all of the accompanying suffering, he's still better. And if you've experienced some things like that, then perhaps you need to think, man, it would be unthinkable to go back to those things. Would I choose those things and death in hell? Or would I choose Christ even if it comes through suffering? He tells us to be people of resolve that live for the will of God, 
and leave behind human passions. The second thing that he wants us to know, and this moves us on to the second point, and these last two points are much shorter, so don't worry. It's not that I've been half an hour and you're like, this has turned into a 90-minute message. No, no, no. These are going to be shorter. But now he wants us to know not only what we need to do, be people of resolve, live for the will of God, leave behind human passions, but he also needs to know what will happen to us. Because if preparation is the key, you need to know what will happen. Because following Jesus comes with consequences. Lots of them are great. Your sin is forgiven. You've got eternal life with him forever. But following Jesus in a world that doesn't will make you look strange. It will make you look weird. It will make you look bizarre to the world around us. And he tells us in verse 4, with respect to these things. So the world is pursuing sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and idolatry. And when they look at you and see that you don't live the same way, they're surprised. They're surprised. They're surprised that you won't join them, especially if you did before and now you won't. They're surprised to see the change in your life. They're surprised by your choices, by your difference, by your priorities, by the implications of the gospel on your life that you're prepared to submit to. And they don't have categories for that. They don't, they don't go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a, a, some Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago wants you to live this way and you're doing it? Yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense to me. No, they go, no, what are you thinking Or they'll say stuff like this, loosen up a little bit. Come on, what's the harm? It won't hurt you. Live a little. Come on, it'll be okay. Enjoy yourself. No one's going to see, are they? No one's going to know. And so they can tempt us back. Now listen, if you don't believe me that people will be surprised, here's, here's something you could do this week, right? Find someone that isn't a Christian Strike up a conversation with them and then at some point tell them, I'm a Christian and I believe that sex is only ever to be used in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Right? That will probably surprise them. Then if you are unmarried and, you, you, and if you say to them, and I am keeping my sexuality for my spouse in the future, they will be surprised at that. Right? Or if you want something else, you know, strike up a conversation and then tell them, no, I don't watch Game of Thrones. Wait for their reaction. Now, if you do watch Game of Thrones, let me encourage you, perhaps you need to repent. <laughs> you might. You might, because from my understanding, it's, it kind of fits into the living sensuality and orgies and lawless idolatry. But they'd be surprised. But then very quickly, their surprise will turn to maligning. Look at what he says. And they will malign you. Their surprise will move. They'll be puzzled at first, but then they'll be probably outraged, and then they'll hate you. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Great. Came to church for this. Their, their comments will go something like this. Wow, Christianity's still a thing? To, oh, trying to be holier than thou, are we? Don't you dare look down on me because I do these things. And they will hate you. And they will call you all manner of names. And they will revile you on the account of Christ. And that was what was happening to these first century original readers. It wasn't state-sponsored violent persecution that was robbing them of their freedom and their lives. No, they were mistreated. 
They were maligned. They were publicly ostracized. They were socially outcast. People didn't want to spend time with them. Now, eventually, sharp words turned to sharp swords under Nero. It was a few years away, but eventually they were killed for their faith. And that might happen to us too. We might be imprisoned. It might be sharp words now, but one day it might be sharp swords. It's only going to get worse. That's why the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10 writes, Do not neglect to meet together, but continue to meet together and do it all the more as you see the day approaching. That's because it's going to get worse. So we need one another to strengthen us, to arm ourselves for the suffering. So we need to know what will happen to us. It'll be surprise followed by, by maligning, which might end up with a sharp sword or an imprisonment. And we've got to be prepared for that. How do we prepare? We arm ourselves. Become people of resolve. We live for the will of God. We put aside human passions. Then thirdly and finally, we need to know what God will do. You see, when you face persecution and suffering, it might feel like opponents have the upper hand. It might feel that Christians get hauled up in court. Can't wear your cross to work. You can't pray with your patient. Can't share the gospel with your kids at school. And opponents have the upper hand. If you read the newspapers or online, it's often there's trial by media. The recent rugby international who put something up on his social media, trial by media. How dare he say that? Now, I don't think it was the wisest thing to say or in the wisest way. But he's barred from all of his life, isn't he? From playing rugby again and making a living and doing this and that because he wanted to make a stand in, for Christ. We could think our opponents have all the cards. They have all the aces. But here Peter wants to remind us they're accountable to God. Look with me at verse 5. So with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He basically just says, listen, everyone who has ever lived or died will experience judgment. No one is going to get away with what they said. No one is going to get away with what they've done. They may mock us and hurt us now, but God will not be mocked. Their days are numbered. And he will call them to account. And we can trust him as the just judge. That he will do what is right. That he will set right what needs to be set right. And he will punish what needs to be punished. That's not our job. That's his job. We now just live rightly. Persevering in the faith. Suffering unjustly. Entrusting ourselves to God, waiting for the time when Christ will make all things new. That's what God will do. He will judge the wicked. That is his job, not ours. Our job, be people of resolve, live for the will of God, leave behind human passions. And then our text closes with a tricky verse in verse 6, another tricky verse that Peter loves, um, where he says this, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What does he mean? Well, here's what I think you need to understand in order for us to understand this verse. The early church were living in, you know, this was written about 20 years after Jesus died, was raised to new life and ascended into heaven. And they had loads of questions about what happened to their friends and family who had believed on the gospel and who had trusted in Jesus Christ but had died. Now, if you follow the logic, if you, if you follow the logic of the Bible, the, the Bible says from Genesis, sin results in death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. But it results in physical death. You die because you sin. Okay, and Romans chapter 5 and 6 supports that as well. But Christ came, and he died the death that we should have died. And so the logic is, well, if, if the wages of sin is death, and Christ came and he died on our behalf, then surely Christians shouldn't die now. Because he's already died for us. So that was the kind of things that they were wrestling with. How does this work? How can it be? If the logic is wages of sin is death, but Christ has paid for our sins, and therefore he died our death, why do we still die? Surely Christians shouldn't die. They had all of these things floating around their heads. What happens when a Christian dies? Now then when you add to that, probably the opponents were coming along and saying, what difference does Jesus make? You still die. You just have to live miserably before you die. Whereas I can do what I like in orgies and drunken parties. Doesn't make any difference, does it? We'll both end up in a box six feet under the ground. <laughs> so Peter wants to assure his readers. Believers who heard the gospel and believed on Jesus when they were alive but have since died, they're not missing out. They're not believing in vain. Although they have died and been judged the way all people are, they will live again by the Spirit of God. He just wants to bring assurance that we have nothing to fear in the face of unjust suffering. That we have nothing to fear in the face of persecution because the just judge will do what is right. He will call all persecutors to account and he will bring all Christians, whether living or dead, to glory. And we can have confidence in that. But for now, prepare. Be people of resolve. Live for the will of God. Leave behind human passions. And entrust ourselves, even in the face of persecution, to the just judge who reigns over all, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.